Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to a Super Bloom podcast. My name is Candace King. Oh man, I'm ready to, to geek out. Today we're talking about a whole bunch of some of my favorite things. Do you like how I said a whole bunch of some of my favorite things? <laughs> I don't think that's how the song went, but I now want to hear Julie Andrews sing a remix of that. You know, these are a few of some of my favorite things. That's what we're doing today. I, when I research guests to come onto this podcast, because some of you might be like, well, what's happening? How, do, how did we get here? And if you're asking that, this is actually what my guest today asked me at the end of our interview. She goes, how did you find me and why am I here? And my answer to that is that I... I just love a deep dive. I love to, I'll find an article, you know, whether it's the news or whether it's like a, you know, a reference in a book or a magazine article. A lot of the times, I'm going to be honest, Daily Mail UK gives me some really interesting, you know, things around the world, which you wouldn't anticipate, but sometimes I get them from there. And, and it's whether it's like a story or it's a, a you know, a human interest, you know, story as well. And then I just get wrapped up into it and I, and I just for like hours then go on like this whole deep dive of who is this and how and and why and what are the who, how, where, why, when and what. I think that all the journalist things that you learn in any kind of first primary English <laughs> writing course. But I do that. I do that. And that's how I got here today. I read an article about Dr. Uliana Pena. Dr. Uliana Pena is a glacial... Glaci- See, she's so fancy, I can't even pronounce it. A glaciologist, a glaciologist, a glacier, glaciologist, a geologist, I can pronounce that one, an astronaut enthusiast, 
And she is also a visiting professor of environmental studies at Colorado College in the United States. She currently lives in Boulder, which I love. Shout out to everyone. I feel like I have so many of my dear friends that went to Boulder. If you've not been to Boulder, even just the town, it's beautiful. It's just a little bit out of Denver, Colorado, where I once lived. And Uliana is there. She she teaches and she is also just a student of the world. Uliana is a keen mountaineer. She's climbed Kilimanjaro, Mont Blanc, a whole list of other places right here that I, I can't pronounce, but they're very tall, big, scary places. And she has been there. By the time Uliana was 23 years old, she had traveled and worked on all seven continents. And she has since started Science in the Wild, which is her own citizen science initiative that has traveled to Nepal, Baffin Island, Kilimanjaro, and the Andes. Her husband, Ricardo, and her are climbing Colorado's 100 highest peaks, the 50 U.S. state high points, and the Global Seven Summits as part of their Summits, Songs, and Science project to bring awareness to the importance of you know fitness, culture, and scientific thinking in modern society but also so that we have a better understanding of climate change. And she wants to share these stories that have been captured by glaciers and the mountains and and rock sediments and because they all tell stories and they tell really interesting stories of the past and they are telling very important stories of our present so that we can prepare for our future. Oh, I love this stuff, guys. And I I just, I, I get just, I, I please enjoy this conversation. I'm just nerding out before we even get into the conversation. So sit down, relax, and get ready to travel the world and head to the highest summits with myself and Dr. Uliana Pena. You're out in Boulder, right? Yeah. So I work at a university in Boulder uh, and live in Broomfield. So it's about a 15 mile ride one way. <laughs> wow. Well, your hair looks fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. A yes. 15 mile ride. And I know that you're used to that. Like to me, a 15 mile ride is like, I mean, I would be bragging about that for the next like couple years, you know, at every <laughs> dinner party, I'd be like, did you know I did a 15 mile bike ride once? Um, and you still have 15 miles to get back all the way home. Yeah, don't this remind is, me. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but this is also what you do. I am so excited to speak with you today on just your zest for life is probably the most casual way to say it. But it, I, by the way, I love that you live out in Boulder. I love Boulder. I lived in Denver for a while. Yeah. And there's really obviously so much to explore. And, you know, just given the high elevation and the mountains there, how long have you been in Denver now? Uh, so been, let's see, wow, almost 13 years now. So I actually moved out here for graduate school. I love the mountains. I wanted to climb the mountains and the university that's here had what I wanted. And so it was just like, it was the perfect fit. And there's also music. My husband's a musician, professional musician. So like, we straddle kind of both the mountains and the music worlds. So it's, it's just a neat place to be based. Yeah. For you, uh, climbing mountains isn't just like this metaphorical life agenda. You you, genuinely, <laughs> you climb a lot of mountains and um, not just for your, not and not for physical, necessarily just for physical fitness, but also for your career. I know that you, there are many things that could be listed as to what you would be considered as your job title. Could you list them all out for me before I completely <laughs> mispronounce them? But one of them is a glaci- glaci- glaciologist, I want to yeah. say. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm going to become a historian soon because all the glaciers are melting. But yes, that's what I studied. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time in the Himalaya, actually, in Nepal. And then I've been on glaciers around the world. And so climbing was the way to get to them, you know, and, and 
And I just kind of fell in love with them at a really young age. My parents took me to the Swiss Alps at age six. And I think it really just imprinted on me. I mean, we, we rode one of those cog railways, you know, we didn't hike <laughs> six years old, <laughs> but it was just such a cool thing. Like there's a snow in July. I'm standing on this. I didn't know what it was, you know, so it's just, it's, yeah, been a part of my life for a long time. I had that experience about a decade ago. My parents have a place in Montana and it's not too far away. It's like their retirement dream is to end mm. up there. So I'm very grateful to just be able to benefit from their retirement dream because Montana is so beautiful and incredible. Gorgeous. But they also are right up there by Glacier National Park. Mm, mm-hmm. And so it was a little over a decade ago and and it was in like mid-June And I remember we went on these like hiking excursions. It was like my dad, my brother and I, and there was snow everywhere. Like we did this whole really long hike up through the park where, you know, at one area, it's like, it feels very like you could sense the moisture in the air and you're seeing like, you know, all kinds of different animals and like even bear like way, way in the distance across the the, like huge, huge lake. So there's no like, you know, we didn't have to reach for the bear spray or anything. (laughs) But then you get up higher and it's you start to see the goats and it's more Mm. like rocks and stuff like that. And then we got up so high that you're just in the snow. And it was just wild to have to use all your different layers all within (laughs) the same couple hours of, of the day. And it was just gave me such an appreciation for that kind of for the I mean, it's as trite as it sounds like the wilderness in a certain way. So when did you then go from this kind of inciting incident of of a trip when you were, you know, to the Swiss Alps when you were six years old to all of a sudden really wanting to make a career of studying glaciers and rocks and sediment and kind of our Earth's history through that? That came about a bit later uh, in life. So I I always loved the outdoors. I did a lot of sports also um, as a kid, got into science fairs. That's scholarships from that actually helped pay for college for me. And I actually wanted to be an astronaut. And so I was studying astronomy and, and, and astrophysics. It became really, really hard. And I took this earth science class in college and I'm like, ah, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to be outside. I want to be camping, hiking, and then doing doing science out here. Then a couple trips. I guess the most impactful one was Antarctica. And it was as my last year in college. I've been trying for for four years. I'm like, I really, really want to go. I want to experience this and got chosen. Uh, it's, it's as hard as the astronaut program in some ways back then because you're working on a research ship. And so you had to get all the medical exams. Um, I had to get all my wisdom teeth removed, even though there's there's nothing wrong with them. <laughs> why did you have? Why do you have to remove your wisdom teeth to go research in Antarctica? <laughs> it was in case like something happened, because like you know nowadays there's lots of tourism, right? But back back then, what was it now? Two thousand seven. It would be much harder for rescue if something were to happen to the ship uh, or happen to you on the ship. And so they just wanted to take care of any possible medical problems. And apparently wisdom teeth can be one of those. So yeah, that and then we couldn't afford it all at once. So I had to do two one time and then two another. So to endure it twice, but it was worth it. It was a really cool trip, literally. And also just working on this ship for four or five weeks, you know, and then seeing penguins, you know, emperor penguins waddling around. And, and it just, that sealed the deal for me that like, all right, now I'm going to go glaciers. <laughs> what were you studying while you were there? So I was a helper that worked on a day ship for 12 hours. So basically whatever they needed help with. These glaciers will erode the ground and then dump all that sediment into the ocean. And we were pulling tubes of that mud or sediment out. 
looking for shells and other things that could tell us how old that mud is and basically how fast the glaciers are are melting melting. and eroding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jeez. And they're melting very fast. I take Mm -hmm. it. I, what's funny, I, that is like, that's become one of my bucket list things I want to do. I want to go to Antarctica and for the only reason of like, it's going away. Like right. what, what is sad? It's so sad. And I feel like if, you know, to be on this earth and be lucky enough to go see it and in all of, you know, the, the life that lives on it, like, why wouldn't I want to go? That sounds incredible. Um, but I also know it's not like a hop, skip and a jump. You don't just take like a first class <laughs> airplane. It's like, it's, but you, you know, even now the way that it's become like a, tour, a crazy tourist attraction, you know, I know that it's a very dangerous, there's like a two week passage to get down there in a ship. But what yeah. is there? Is there a moment that you remember besides just the actual research that you were doing? But I imagine out there, there's not a lot of people, especially when you were out there, and I would imagine it's very quiet. Is there anything that you took from the experience of being there with such a limited group of people who all kind of are fascinated by the same thing and, ha- and are curious in the same ways of the earth? No, absolutely. I had a hit on it because these are people who are so passionate about the same things and have a lot of knowledge you know, that they bring to the table. And there is the quiet is so interesting, right? Because we're used to the sound of planes, planes, trains, and automobiles, right? Mm -hmm. And so you don't have that. I mean, you have the sounds of the ship, of course, but you can still just sit in nature. You can watch it go by, you know, and life is just going on as it is, and you're just a witness to it. And one of the most incredible things that happened on that trip, the glaciers, when they break off, is called calving. They're basically giving birth to an iceberg. And it's so there's a, a YouTube video that shows it a massive chunk of the ice wall came down. We had seen it, you know, f- kind of falling in pieces all, all day, all morning. And then a huge chunk came down. And then you only see like 10% the ice on top. So you can imagine this enormous piece of ice bobbing back up to the surface. And our whole ship shifted, you know. And it's so, like I was out on the back deck taking video of this because I'm like, oh my God, like this whole wall is coming down. And then they're like, no, get inside, get inside. We got inside and things went flying in the lab when the wave hit us of that ice. And someone told me later that she worked on the opposite shift. She was in the shower and she got flung out of the shower and she was wondering what just happened here. So like at the time when you're seeing that, you're like, wow, this is absolutely incredible how powerful Mother Nature is. And also like we are the only witnesses to this event. And this event, these kinds of things could be happening all over the place. So you're right. Go and see it. Oh, while you can, I'll be your guide. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) Speaking of that, you would go on. I'm really excited to make sure that we have tons of time. I want to talk a lot about your experience staying in Nepal. But obviously, you know, it it is very sad what just happened to the there was a group of five people who were going down to see the Titanic. Mm-hmm. The whole world was kind of enraptured, even though, you know, it is the, there is also a separate conversation to be had about the fact that there were 700 refugees um, who were in a shipwreck and it didn't right. was not getting any coverage from the news and media until finally some people started talking about it. But there is like this has become like a very big kind of like vacation style trend. Like even you saying that a lot of people weren't going to Antarctica like when you were there. And now Mm -hmm. there's trips all year round. Mm -hmm. I mean, before it used to be 
like there's a few people that climb Everest and now they're offering offering it up as like a package deal and Kilimanjaro and and all these like really, really extreme, you know, experiences and journey within like through nature. I mean, to 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 market a trip down to the depths of the ocean in which we had not really even been able to fully explore, you know, the same distance up in space, you know, like I think is or unless I got that wrong from a headline. But all I'm saying is it is a very dangerous depth to the ocean that they were trying to achieve. So and this has all happened in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. You are someone who has taken the time to train, who lives in a lot of these environments for a longer period of time, who are not only going to visit, I'm sure, for sense of your own personal curiosity and achievement, but also because you're there to study and to learn and to share what you receive from these experiences with others for an educational purpose. Mm-hmm. How have you, what are your thoughts on this kind of like adventure tourism that really is kind of in these like sacred places that are very also like high risk. No, I have a lot of thoughts on this, <laughs> but it comes down to, I think more people do need to see and experience these kinds of places because I see how it evokes a passion and compassion, right? For a passion for like these wild places that exist on the planet, like you even spoke to, right? That you would love to see and compassion for the change And honestly, sometimes when you see it for yourself, that can help stimulate the action, right? So the trips that I do guide on, there's always a science component, though, saying give back, right? So I think like any type of adventure tourism, because let's face it, it's not going away, should strive to give back, right? So so maybe you can contribute something to science, help the scientists who are on board these ships uh, with their research, because if ships are constantly going there, that's a treasure trove of data. Right, the scientists can use to understand. And obviously we have to be following regulation and safety. That's always been first. Like one of my mottos when I first started doing all this was safety, science, summits. Okay, So safety was always paramount for anyone I would take, myself as well. The science that I wanted to do up there and then the summit if we got to it. In some cases I've seen a reversal of this where there's a lot of trophy hunting and, and racing for these things and, 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 and the records. To each their own, right, if they want to pursue that. But also it's you have a responsibility, though, if you're going to be taking people on these trips, right? And so there, that's really important to me that whatever I will take people on, I know that safety is paramount and there's safe ways to do it. I mean, there's been other submersibles that have gone down to the site and that have, have put in years and years, decades of research into making it seaworthy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, same, same thing with space and with how far SpaceX has come. But it's an iterative process. Exploration is hard. Right, it is. And I do think there's a role for how adventure tourism plays in helping scientists too, right? Because we're always like looking for grants. Yeah. That's always a challenge, just trying to find money. If we can have people who are also passionate about helping the science, you know, not just looking to tick off a box, but also interested and invested in it, that's great all around. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. My assumption is to go straight to your experience in Nepal and in the Sherpas that you met there. Do you, if you learned from the experience of like their guidance and how you are able to impart your guidance to others when you take people on experiences is do you feel like that that was was there moments before that or other guides or other journeys and trips that that impacted you or was that kind of the main one i'll say that was kind of the main one but the interesting thing with with nepal is i went there for my first expedition at age 25 you know, and I'm coming with all these equipment, like ready to climb. And I'm like, there's debris and rocks covering this entire glacier. And I have these spikes and an ax. <laughs> and so, you know, you really learn from the locals and the communities what the terrain is like and how it's changing. So I always wanted to integrate that into my experiences with research. Um, so I built this Sherpa Scientist Initiative where it, it was dual serving. Right. So I could come in with some of the instrumentation to really understand how things are changing. But then they also bring all their traditional knowledge and, and the, the things that they have witnessed over time. Right. Because they're living. They're living amongst these glaciers. And so there's there's a lot of value there. So I think it's important to listen to them and their stories as well. So that was always important for me. And then when I lived there for almost a year on a Fulbright uh, fellowship, that was pretty life changing because you're living in a country that doesn't have the conveniences like we do in the States, even like running water, you can't trust it coming out of your faucet to even drink, right? You can easily get sick and you see just how poor the people are. And it just really stimulates you to want to do something, you know, to help with the scientific knowledge, but not just have it just be the scientists coming in and doing it, but integrating a community into that work. So that, that was, and still remains very important to me. Kind of, I guess you can think of it as like community science and applied yeah. science. No. Well, and also honoring, I mean, kind of what you were talking about, you're in Antarctica and you see this, it was just you guys to see this entire glacier, you know, calf into the ocean and, or, you know, just the part of the glacier. What did the Titanic hit a iceberg? You saw yeah. the iceberg mm -hmm. calf into the ocean, but then, and, and you were there to witness it. And so, and to 
to know that there is like a part of nature that lives with only you, that you are the only one Mm -hmm. there. And to honor the people, I'm sure of Nepal, who are there witnessing this nature and who hold that, you know, they're the ones who are being honored by the nature and who are carrying the stories that the nature is telling them and get to share with other people. So in being there, what was your, when you were 25 years old, what were you trying to study? What were you trying to understand about the glaciers in Nepal? Yeah, so I kind of had an idea going in of what I wanted to study. And it was these lakes that form on the surface of glaciers, and they kind of eat away at the ice. Right? We mostly think about glaciers retreating and advancing. You probably hear that a lot. But in glaciers on mountain areas kind of thin. They, they, they deflate, if you will. How does that happen? Right, so we brought some time-lapse cameras to actually watch what is going on. And they were, they were these hunting cameras that I found for cheap, you know, at an outdoor shop. Because again, graduate school salaries. So <laughs> brought these things out and, and the Sherpas I was working with helped me set them up. They were really excited and interested in what we would see. And one of the things is like gadgets are one thing, right? There's lots of distractions that we have in, in modern life. And it's easy to just be like, all right, let's set a camera and just, and then let's go and, and leave it. But I love to sit on the edge of the glacier sometimes for hours at a time, just listening and watching. And that's a really neat thing for me in nature to be able to do that. I'm the only person sitting on the edge of this glacier, just listening and then, and then closing my eyes really and just trying to focus on like, what secrets are there in nature that might get revealed? So that's a really neat thing. I think that sometimes gets distracted by all the modern day kind of gadgetry, even though that can be really helpful for research because the time-lapse cameras did reveal these uh, massive drains of these lakes. So the water is going somewhere, right? Is it going and it can potentially flood the villages below, which is why we're interested in it. But then they refilled within the span of a couple of weeks. And had we not put those cameras there, no one would have known that that had happened. So again, it was kind of this feeling of like, wow, I'm able to see what's happening that no one else has seen. And that's what really drives me also is that discovery. You feel like there's not much to, to discover anymore, right? On the planet, we have Google Earth. But the ocean, obviously, that's a big one. And a lot of these mountainous areas where people don't go. What were the secrets revealed to you when you were just there alone? How quickly things change. Like I I had an idea of like, ah, this is going to take months before I see something. And then I see a drain within like a day. Like, oh, okay, where did all that water go all of a sudden? And then finding the pathways, the tunnels months later, these, these ice caves like you go into, obviously you have to go in the winter when it's frozen over and discovering like, oh, that's maybe how they communicate, kind of like a glacier subway, if you will, subway system all below the surface, right? So it's like, wow, we have an idea of what we see at the surface is not all that's happening. So a lot going on inside and underneath. So that, that was pretty cool. And again, just seeing the time scale because we talk about how things are changing and I'm seeing it right in front of my eyes, how quickly it's happening. Mm-hmm. What is the definition of a Sherpa? I'm realizing. Yeah, yeah. The Sherpa is actually an ethnicity. It's actually an ethnicity. It's used a lot for, to describe the people who help carry loads on Everest, but those are porters, but Sherpa is actually an ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's Sherpa, there's Tamang. And so they all have the the same last name. Then the the first names are based on the day of the week that you're born. Really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Was there one in particular that you worked with? more regularly? Or I mean, were you, I'm assuming living there for a year, you really got to know this community quite well. Is there a, one person in particular that really like has stayed with you in your heart or something, a piece of wisdom or something that you, you witnessed and you felt like you were observing them in like this beautiful secret way that no one else got to, to see that you've carried with you a secret that you took away with yourself from that experience? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, my first trip was when I was 25, and I've still kept in touch with this Sherpa. Ang Fula is his name. I got introduced to him through a local company in, in Kathmandu in Nepal. And David Brashears, I don't know if you know, he's he did the 1996 Everest IMAX film. Uh, so he was there filming, and then and I got to know him. He became kind of a mentor for me on the project, and he introduced me to his team. And I could see why he worked with them. They're so curious. You know, it's just not about like hauling stuff around. Like they're actively involved, like with him, with the filming. And in my case, uh, with the science. And they wanted to sit down and look, you know, and then see like, well, what are the pictures showing? Or what did you see today? And they love to go in this inflatable raft, you know, so we'd go around the lakes also making measurements. And they love that. And so I, I just, I loved how they were so curious and wanting to also understand what's happening at a deeper level. But yeah, Ang Fula is the one that really sticks out because he was there for me from the beginning. And then when we were trying to get back to Kathmandu, so you have to take this 45-minute pretty harrowing flight and you land on a runway that's inclined and it's very, very short. So, so it's, it's, quite, it's quite dangerous. inclined runway? Yeah. So it's in Lukla, this mountain town. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's on, a, on a slope so that you slow down before you, you know, hit the, the mountain. <laughs> so you have to have perfect weather for it. And we got stuck for about five days, you know, just this wall of cloud. And so he just you know, kept me company and we would play cards and we would share stories and then music, you know, and all these things. And it's just like, and you get to really learn more about the culture too, because there's all these little uh, towns and tea houses all along the way. And so that for me, again, was just a neat experience. It, when I go back there, it feels like another home. It really does. It's so familiar. What are you, what are you eating together? What tea are you drinking? And please tell me what music you're listening to together. <laughs> I, I love this like little yeah. vision, this story being told in my mind right now. Yeah. So usually it's this, uh, just, just black tea, but they were like, oh, you need to try the yak butter tea. I'm like, hmm. What's yak butter tea? Very salty. As I found out. <laughs> is it from yak? <laughs> like, I'm, the, I'm like, is it? <laughs> so I learned that the yak is the male, the knack is the female. So technically it's knack butter. But yeah, it's just the butter that they make and they put it, you know, a glob of it in this black tea and it's, it's very, very salty. So yeah, I had a bunch of that. And then believe it or not, they had tang. <laughs> so they had what? Tang, the stuff that the astronauts drink. <laughs> so I'd be like, yeah, I want some of the hot tang today. So, you know, I just mix it up. <laughs> and then dalbat is like one of the standard meals. And so it's rice with lentils. So you know, quite healthy. And yeah. they, they call it 24 hour dalbat power. You know, how do the Sherpas go like on the trails all this long? Oh, the secrets in the dalbat. Um, so yeah, it's quite tasty. And then a lot of traditional music. I remember in one particular tea house, um, I can't remember the name of the instrument now, but the owner like brought it out and started playing it. I'm like, this is incredible, you know, just to see, to be in the mountains, you know, at, like 14,000 feet. And then you have this traditional food, this traditional music. It's how I always envision the Himalaya, yeah. you know, and that magic is still there. Which is so lovely. Just as you're saying all this, like that's all I'm, I'm like the sense of magic. And it is, you know, going back to what you're mentioning, like in this technology filled world where you can just get on Google Maps or, or try to or look at a video, how something happened. It's really taking the time to be present and, you know, really listen to the people around you, listen to the nature that speaks to you if you actually pay attention to it. But it's really hard to do. I mean, even now when I go to visit Montana and my parents, their their cabin, you can't see any other houses from it. It's really up mm. there. And it takes a couple days to adjust to the quiet and to like breathe into it 
and not feel like the anticipation of like needing to be somewhere or needing to have part of your brain thinking about something else or needing to be on the next page instead of just mm-hmm. reading the page that you're on. Oh, absolutely. You're hitting on that because it's like, it's go, go, go in the modern mm-hmm. world. It's stressful, you know, even when you try to minimize it. So yeah, once you get out there, like my ears ring, you know, as they yeah. like, where's all the noise? Yeah. Right. And, and then you adjust, like you say, and you adjust to that slower pace and it's the most wonderful thing. And the idea of getting lost, I miss the days when I didn't have to get an international plan when I'd go travel through <laughs> Europe, like when that when that was even like a thing, like now mm-hmm. you can get on a Wi-Fi and it's this whole, but I, I remember tra- I've traveled alone a lot in my life and I would love that. I just like get on a bike in Amsterdam, in Amsterdam and have no idea where I was <laughs> for a good couple hours and then be like, oh, I remember this street now and make it back to the houseboat I was renting. And it was the most delightful afternoon where I got to just pay attention to where I was and not have to worry that like I'm needing to be anywhere else but exactly where I am. And a lot of these experiences were you traveling with a group of people and other scientists or were you kind of embarking on these missions on your own? Yeah, so I mean, it's a mix. So the first Himalayan expedition was on my own. My supervisor's like, yep, all right, go. You know, you know we'll figure it out. And I think that was one of the coolest things is like, that's exciting to me. Also, I, I like just kind of exploring and seeing where it leads sometimes because you find the neatest things. So I met my Sherpa team in Nepal, right? So, so I was already kind of planning all this on my own and then meeting a group there. The ship in Antarctica and kind of just got plugged into the group. And you just get plugged into kind of that dynamic but there are times, you know, that you can find that alone time uh, late at night. You know, I just like to go out onto the back deck and just listen to the ocean, right? It can be very, very powerful. And just looking at the, the stars also. So yeah, even, even in moments where you're working with a team, you can find some of that solitude. That's really important for me because you feel more deeply connected to nature then. What other expeditions are big highlights from your career or ones that have revealed, you know, the story of the earth to you that revealed answers that you were looking for? Yeah, another one that really stands out is Baffin Island. So it's just west of Greenland. It's in the Canadian Arctic. So it's pretty wild up there. And so I went with two colleagues and I flew with one of them in a Cessna 210. So you can imagine how small that plane is. What is that? I have no idea it's, what that is. Is it? I'm imagining like a little seaplane with like two seats in it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. So, so, it was like, so my worst nightmare. That, Perfect. Yeah. Just my worst nightmare of a plane. Perfect. But we had wheels. Yeah. So we had, oh, to, we had to do <laughs> a little better. But no, so we had to fly from Boulder all the way up to Baffin Island. So it took about five days making kind of pit stops along the way. So the point was we wanted to lessen our carbon footprint instead of flying commercially. And also, you know, the adventure part of it. And he was the pilot. And so I, I, I had learned, you know, a little bit like just read about flying. He was like, take the controls. We can cross the border from the U.S. to Canada. I'm like, all right, this is great. So he was kind of teaching as we went. But obviously he was he was the pro there. And I was taking, you know, photos out the, out the window and enjoying, you know, the experience of flying in that kind of small aircraft. And then once we landed there, then we met with the elders, the Inuits, who gave us a ride on a snowmobile with all our equipment. It's one of the last ice caps, the last kind of remaining big ice caps to study pollution, basically, to look at is the pollution we're generating from our factories and our cars falling on the snow and ice way up in the Arctic, because that wasn't quite known yet. That's becoming big research kind of questions now that people are pursuing. But back then, it was still kind of a, a question. And it was kind of the ultimate adventure because you have a three-person team dragging sleds of scientific equipment on a glacier, which can have cracks or crevasses. So you have to navigate that carefully. At one point, we were in a whiteout. It's basically like being in a snow globe, 
<laughs> so you can't see anything and you're navigating by your instrument, right? You're like, okay, I know Are you I have attached to one another? No. Mm-mm. Are you just going like, Marco, Polo? <laughs> <laughs> We're like, wait, wait, don't go too yeah, far ahead. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we tried to keep ourselves within, within sight, but man, at some points, yeah, it was getting really like socked in. And so that was a pretty intense experience. But, you know, you learn how to use, you can have the electronic, you know, GPS plus a compass. You know, it's really good to know how to use both things because when gadgets fail, right, you can have the, uh, the analog things to help. And that was a really interesting experience because of the intensity of it. Three people out, you know, on, on this ice cap alone, just polar bears, right? So I had to carry a rifle for protection and, and stand watches. And then looking to see for those impacts of pollution, which we did find. Not as bad, thankfully, as, as you know, it could be. But it was just kind of telling that even in what you expect to be these remote, untouched places, we're still reaching them, you know, with our pollution. So, and I have colleagues who are also working on the plastics, understanding all the, it's unbelievable. They're finding yeah. them. On, on high mountain peaks in Antarctic waters, it's everywhere. So our, our fingerprints everywhere, but there's ways we can clean it up. And I think a lot of my work is trying to like, not just be like, ah, oh, you know, you know, this is a problem. It's about solutions, right? So how do we, how do we fix these problems? Cause there's a lot of things we can be doing to fix it. Did you always, did you feel very passionate about climate change when you were younger? Is this something that has grown and grown and grown throughout your career? I would say it's something that's grown and grown because like my initial kind of interest was in being the astronaut, right? In outer space and really loving that. And then I got into geology. And then I, I, there was a little bit of time I was also really interested in volcanoes. So I went and studied an active volcano in Hawaii as well. <laughs> and, then, and then glaciers came about. And as I learned about glaciers through the PhD, I really learned what role climate change is playing. I mean, I've also borne witness to a lot of these changes because things have been accelerating you know, just, just recently. And based on when I started to where we are now, I can see it. I can see it visually in places also where you might not necessarily expect because they're untouched. Right. But, but our, our reach is global. It truly is. And so, yeah, I now teach courses actually as a visiting professor at a university on climate change. You know, so for the last, I think, six years now, because it's something I really, really wanted to learn more and more about and not only learn about, but give people hope, right? It's super important because if we don't have hope, we won't act. Uh, is there hope? <laughs> there is. There okay. is. There is. Like the stuff I look at with, uh, with pollution, like this stuff stays up in the atmosphere for a couple of weeks. Um, it's called soot. It comes from like from cars and factories, but then it settles out. And unfortunately, it can settle on the snow and ice and we're detecting that, you know, in the mountains and glaciers. But it's something that you can solve within a few weeks. You know, you can put filters on the motorbikes, on the cars, you can regulate factories. There's things that are actually doable with that problem. Carbon dioxide is a whole nother can of worms to deal with. But that part and the plastics, that's something we can phase out or we can do collectively. So there is hope. And the thing is, we have to act. You know, we have to act now. And now is even too late, as we know, but like, but we can't keep delaying. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I've, I've listened to an interview of yours where you were talking about uh, specifically studying ice and, and also just in rocks and sediments that, that there's story there. And, as, and especially with ice, that it's almost like things become frozen in time. And now you're just like at a race trying to to read the story before it goes away forever. Are there any other stories that you've come across that, that you've found frozen in time in your expeditions and in your studying that that you that you've that's really stuck with you and impacted you? Yeah, you just you literally gave me goosebumps because I was just remembering, you know, yes, these are these frozen stories and they're melting and we're rapidly trying to read them before they disappear for good. In some cases, lower down in the ice, for example, you can see markers of, of past historical events. I personally haven't seen it. I just know of it from research, but like nuclear meltdown in Chernobyl in Ukraine, you can actually see that signal on an ice core from a mountain. So like that is just telling the radioactive materials, for example, in ice, you know, and, and what's going to happen when all this stuff starts to melt out? Because you also have, they've also been finding anthrax, you know, in the permafrost, the frozen lands up north. And what happens if we start to melt all that as well? So we just all went through a pandemic, right? And like, uh, what if there's more coming on something we didn't even expect because the, the, the ice is melting. So I'm very interested in, in reading and learning more about that. Just knowing that all these things are melting out. Yeah, I mean, there's, again, a lot of stories still to be told, especially down in Antarctica, because Antarctica's ice is still really, really thick. So I'll hopefully be going back there in a few months again to continue studying down there in a place I've never been before. Where is that? It's all along, it's a stretch between South America and New Zealand. So the kind of the Ross Sea area. I've always kind of worked at the tip of the, of the continent, but I mean, it's a huge continent. Mm -hmm. If you overlay the U.S. on that, Antarctica is bigger. I mean, it's just staggering how big it is. So yeah, all along that sea there where some of the glaciers are rapidly changing because there's this two-pronged attack happening. One is the air temperature increasing and one is the ocean. And then if you add in the pollution on top of it, which is what we're looking for, we're hoping at least one of those things we can do something about. Yeah. And that's the pollution. Yeah. In some of these, you know, in talk, going back to talking about like the people taking these big excursions, is that something that you've also like been sensitive to or noticed? I mean, namely, the one that comes to mind is 
people hiking or hiking casual term for it, but people <laughs> climbing Everest or even Kilimanjaro. And, and there's just like debris and litter and waste everywhere. And that it's become like a big problem of certain, you know, not every, but some of these kind of commercialized expedition groups. Yeah. I mean, again, that's, it's not going away. So how can we mitigate it? Right. Yeah. It's so I think if you're interested in going and doing that, because you want that personal challenge too, just take responsibility. And one is, you know, there are carbon offsets, you know, if you're going to travel, but again, is that kind of just putting a bandaid on a, on a problem? Is that actually doing anything supporting local communities? Right. So you can be doing that in, in many, many ways. And going with a company that really has those ethics in place that they're leave no trace. Right. I'm sure you know that from, from your hikes I hear in the States. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. So just really emphasizing that, that we should be leaving no trace on the mountains because the mountains are such sensitive environments. Things don't break down there, right? So you throw a banana peel up there, it's not going to break down. So just being really sensitive to those things and, and supporting the companies that really practice that if you're going to go. Another excursion that I listened to you talk about was it, actually an event that I'm very fascinated about. I remember watching the docu-series and I know there was the book, but it was about in the Andes. It was the rugby team and that you ended up going and hiking to the area of the plane crash. And there's even a, a show that's kind of like, you know, touched on it a little bit right now that's on Showtime, Yellow Jackets, about a soccer team that crashes, but, and they live out in the wilderness, which is a completely, but there's other mythological forces at, at hand in there. Hearing you talk about visiting this site is almost like that's kind of like frozen in time and still finding parts of this plane. And for those of you that don't know about what happened, and you can fill in the gaps too, if I'm missing anything. But there was, it was back in the 70s, I want to say. Yeah, 1972. And, and there was a plane crash in the Andes. It was a rugby team. And there were 42 people. Uh, 45. On the, 45 yeah, people 40. on the plane and not many that survived. It gathered a lot of attention because of the survivors it discussed in a book that became a movie that there's also a docuseries about that they went to all extremes to survive, which included cannibalism, which is why it really became like a much bigger story. But it's really a story about survival in very difficult conditions. And what is so wild to me is with the, the fact that they had that the disposable camera or they had a camera mm -hmm. and they brought that film back with them. They took photos while they were there. And but it's incredible that they were able to survive in those conditions in the, you know, with snow and in the wintertime for two months. So what inspired you to, to make the journey to that crash site? And just, I'm so interested in hearing about that experience. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out where to start because back in 2017, I was on an expedition in Chile climbing a remote volcano and it took a bit of a tumble. Let's just put it that way. A few hundred feet. <laughs> Oh um, uh, yeah. So <laughs> are you climbing? Are you attached? Are you like, are you no just free climbing? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's, it wasn't anything super technical, but it was like 45 degree slope. So once you start going and you have to be able to arrest your fall, the, the terrain just was, was, wasn't allowing for it. And you're doing this at like over 20,000 feet. So you can imagine how tired you are and trying to stop yourself. Well, so basically I tumbled head over heels for a few hundred feet, survived all that. We came home and saw a Facebook post from someone who had recently become a friend. And he's now my husband. And I so, was wondering, I, I know, yeah, in, the, yeah. in the story, you said like boyfriend. And I was, I didn't want to like just assume and be, and, but yes. Okay, perfect. So I tell him, reminding him, I literally fell head over heels for you. Because right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually really shy. So like, I don't pursue guys. And I'm like, you know what? 
I just survived this. You know, I, I've really pursued so many things in my professional life, but not always my personal. I'm going for it. Right. And so and then here we are. So Ricardo, he actually found the coat and wallet of one of the survivors in a gully back in 2005. He was climbing to see where the impact had happened. You know, he'd heard the story as well. So he went and found a coat and wallet of one of the 16 survivors. You know, so you can just imagine this passport intact. And it's one of the 16 also. So he was able to get that back to the survivor, Eduardo. And then they started taking people to the site in the company of the survivor who would tell the story. And you can actually wow. come on it. We're doing it again what? in December. Yeah, we're doing what? it. You can come on horseback. I mean, my first time to the site, I was in tears. It was so moving to stand there, to think about these poor people just surviving 72 days in this harsh terrain. They're not mountaineers. You know, they they never seen snow and they're at like 11,000 feet. It was surreal. I had goosebumps. You know, there's like you said, there's lots of things melting out on the glacier and even much more than from my first time there, including human remains. So when we find those, now there's a there's a memorial cross and a grave site. You know, we bury the remains when they're found because that's the wish of the survivors. You know, if anything is is found on the surface of the glacier. And so I have been going for the past six years there. And just in those six years, the glaciers dramatically changed. So it's the time to see it. If you want to see one of the most famous like survival stories where that took place in the company of one of the survivors, because he's wow. 75 now. He actually married Ricardo and me. He was our officiant. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, I read the story as a kid and I'm like a small part of it. All right. So there's a, a new documentary that just came out uh, 50 years later where I talk about climate change as well as my, my, my role in it. It's only been sold in Europe so far. I hasn't found in a, an American distributor yet, but it's a story. I want to kind of come back, circle back to what you're saying. It's a story of resilience, survival. And there is a parallel to climate change because climate change is something we're all facing. It's like the biggest thing we're all going to face for our survival. It seems impossible. All right. And then you see what these boys, these young men were able to do as a team and they pulled together and, you know, they had everything against them, all odds. And they got out partially. Okay. Maybe luck played a role because of the weather, you know, and and when they were crossing the Andes, but you got to give them credit to, you know, of how they worked together as a team to survive all that because they had two who crossed the Andes to find help. They made them a sleeping bag. You know, they gave them extra rations so they would have energy. And so it's just an incredible survival story that I think 50 years later now still holds lessons that we can all learn from. And that glacier and that earth and those rocks hold the story and freeze it in time temporarily if we're there to pay attention to it and listen to the story as well. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also one of those kind of sacred sites, you know, because it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy Mm -hmm. as well as a story of survival. And so... We're very respectful, you know, of the site. We're trying to make, you know, I'm trying to make a scientific contribution of understanding how this really remote place, I mean, it's really remote compared to all the places I've, I've worked, how it's also changing. And then also to preserve the stories, you know, of the survivors and of those who are lost. Um, there's a museum actually in Uruguay that you can visit where a lot of the, the artifacts are on display to, again, keep the story alive. And that's the name of the, the book and movie. Yeah. Mm. For anyone listening who has dreamed of of 
climbing a mountain or booking an expedition or or going somewhere that they feel that is, uh, you know, too far within reach because maybe they might be fearful or or they wouldn't even know how to, you know, get there. What advice would you give them as far as training, research, and just the bravery it takes some time to get out of your comfort zone and go ask the world some questions? Oh, oh, I love how you just phrased that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many resources. You know, you can take courses. My husband and I teach courses, you know, of how do you travel safely in the mountains and on a glacier, depending on what level kind of mountain you want to climb. So, yeah, you can always take a course, you know, really get comfortable. And if you're feeling uncertain, go with friends. You know, maybe maybe you'll push each other out of your comfort zones and you'll discover something new together or your siblings. Right. So I think it is scary you know, to step out into the world. Cause I remember like nowadays it's like, oh, it's just traveling again. You know, it's like, I'm sure you feel the same, but it's like thinking back to when you first started. Yeah, it is. It is scary because you're going into the unknown, but I think that is also the human spirit. You know, that's what we do. And uh, we always kind of have that kind of built in curiosity. And so go satisfy it, you know, but do it safely. And so you can do that. There's so many resources on the internet, but you got to vet that as well. So yeah, look for professional companies who can give you guidance, resources, and and courses to pursue that. And then go for it. You know, like I come from a a family that, you know, my grandparents immigrated from Ukraine. And so we didn't have like that much growing up. And I just, everything I I got to do as far as my experiences was scholarship or just continuously asking like for Antarctica. I'm like, I'm going to persistently apply for this thing until I hopefully get it or not, you know. Uh, just being persistent. And then one thing led to the next, to the next with, with scholarships and, and experience. I crowd fundraised my PhD because I, wow. couldn't, I couldn't afford to go to the Himalaya. And I'm like, well, here's the science I'm going to do. I'm going to bring you into the fold. What is it like to be a scientist? You know, coming from someone who's a scientist in training at that point. Right? So you can really see what it's about, especially when it comes to climate change, right? And how things like you see all the stuff in the news. And you're like, well, how do you get that data? how do you tell that story? And so that's why I started bringing people on these kind of citizen science trips as well, you know, to show them this is how we do it. This is the source of that data. So the more you're educated, I think the more you're inclined to want to care, you know, about preservation of the planet. And that's kind of my, my whole theme in my life is all a bit about science education, bringing science to the people and bringing people to the science. Well, thank you for bringing all of us on all your incredible journeys and expeditions today. Uliana, I have been so excited to have this conversation. I'm just fascinated by, you know, isolation and experiencing moments where it's just kind of where you're the only one there to see it, just kind of what you were describing. And so hearing your stories and reading about you before we sat down, I I just thank you for what you do. And also thank you. It's like, I could not be now I'm like, where's a plane? Where's my passport? (laughs) I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go do something. But before I let you go, I always cool down with like five questions with all my guests. I'm a little conversation cool down. So Five simple mm-hmm. questions. The first thing that pops into your mind. Okay. What is something that you like? Something that I like? Yeah. Music. What kind of music? <laughs> I, I love the Beatles and Eagles. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I... I, I classics. Yeah, classics. <laughs> What's something that you know? Something that I know. I know a lot about climate change and, and the state of the world, how it's changing. And that's what I want to convey however I can, with how many people I can, of what we can do for the planet. 
Is there something simple that we can do? <laughs> is there just like a little piece of hope or something that you tell your students or leave your students with? Yeah, I mean, so carbon footprints are, can be quite big, right? And so today is a great example, bike to work. Yeah. Right. I love seeing all these people out, you know, on, on the bikeways. And then like, as we're going, as I'm coming into campus, I just see this like long line of cars and traffic. And I'm like, huh, I'm glad I'm not there, but I am breathing the fumes yeah. though. <laughs> but no, seriously, things like that, if they're done collectively, like there's so many ways to lessen footprints. The biggest one I see actually is lights left on. <laughs> like, guys, I am teaching a climate change class and you left the classroom lights on again. So we did a calculation on actually how much that cost, you know, financially, and then converted that to how much energy that would have been in the cost of meals somewhere else in the world. You leaving that light on costs someone 100 meals right now. So I think bringing it back to real world examples really sticks. Those kinds of stories really stick with people that you just turning off lights or just biking or taking a public transportation can help a lot. What is something that you hate besides leaving the lights on? <laughs> oh, that was my answer. <laughs> uh, that's a tough one. It can be anything. Like mine's blue cheese. I hate it. Oh, actually, I have some blue cheese on my salad I'm going to pick off. I'll go with that one then. Yeah. Perfect. Like who decided we all like blue cheese? And where was I for that meeting? <laughs> I like social media, but I hate it too. You know, it's kind of yeah. a love-hate relationship because it's like it's so much good can come from it, but it also like so much negativity. So there, there's, there's that yep. too. You know? Yeah. What's something that you love that's not your family, your partner? <laughs> I love the natural world. There's nothing that beats a walk in the woods or mountains. And what is a quirky little fact about you? Quirky fact. I sing a lot in the shower. <laughs> My husband's it, trying to teach me to sing. So it's like, oh. yeah. And you're a singer. So yeah. Um, it's In a different life. In a different life. Um, <laughs> do you guys have a song that you're singing together? So a Beatles tune. Norwegian Wood. I can nail that one now. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Uliana. Thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom and all of your findings that you travel the world to discover with all of us. We'll be cheering you on the whole way. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really cool to meet you, talk with you. A Super Bloom podcast is hosted by me, Candice King, produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions, edited by Diane Kang, post-production sound by Coco Lawrence, and advertising partnership with ACAST.